People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Rodney Trudgeon here on Fine Music Radio welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. We have a distinguished diplomat in the studio because the mid-80s, as most people are aware, was a very difficult period internationally for South Africa. Most of Africa was now independent with a strong voice in world councils and the demand for sanctions against the Republic became irresistible with South Africa's diplomats at the forefront of resistance. South Africa's heads of mission found themselves working on two levels, trying to persuade the South African government to follow up on its commitment to change and simultaneously working to persuade foreign governments to hold off with increasing punitive measures. Someone who felt this feeling very keenly is the diplomat I'm talking about, Glenn Babb. And Glenn's account of his life is gripping. And it is all to do with the Rubicon speech as well. There's lots to cover, but Glenn has published a book called In One Era and Out of the Other. And that's going to be the basis of our interview. And Glenn, welcome to Fine Music Radio and to People of Note. Thank you, Rodney. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice now personally across <laughs> a microphone. You say the nice, then you're allowed to stay. I thank you. <laughs> Glenn, the first thing I want to ask you, it's a most intriguing title, In One Era and Out of the Other. How did you come up with a title like that? Well, it is meant to be ironic, of, mm, course, of course, because yeah. it means the, the past was something that you have left behind its history, and now you're moving into a new era. But at the same time, just to play on that word in one ear and out of the other was something that I couldn't uh, help. That the temptation was too great. And if you look at the cover, you can see there's a bit of ticker tape that's going in one ear and going out of the other. And it's speaking in French. It says, et hors de l'autre, and out of the other. So this really is in one ear. The out of the other, I shall have to follow up with another book because my... Editor said this is getting long, too long now, and <laughs> yes. if you want to speak about what happened afterwards, then we shall have to start with something new. Yeah, because it's about 500 pages, Yes, and there are a lot of stories from an extraordinary career which you're going to go into. But at what, how far do you take it, you say, future tense? Well, when I left uh, the, uh, the embassy in Rome and came back to South Africa, there was no car to meet me. I knew that this meant... <laughs> you were just Mr. Normal. <laughs> just the normal the man. The man in the street. Which has always been the case. There are some ambassadors who don't even remember how to open the door of a car. But it, for me, I always used to sit next to my chauffeur. And, you know, it's my most fantastic friends and uh, supporters were the chauffeurs that were there. The one in Canada wrote to me saying, this is the first time I've ever written a letter. And that was really flattering. Yes, and the other great. one I have, Bruno Prietti, who was the driver in Rome. We still keep contact. He remembers all the children's birthdays. He is a, a really good friend. He's now 84 years old. Well, those are two lovely stories. I hope you kept the letters as well. I did. <laughs> it's a little um, memento of an extraordinary. So do you think, we're jumping ahead here a bit, but do you think you will write another book? I have already written one about Johannesburg, where I was born. My great-grandfather was the first dentist in Johannesburg. Oh, really? And he uh, had the fame of being the person who treated the teeth of the Jamison Raiders. 
So he was <laughs> already there at the time of the gold rush. Right. Uh, and uh, that Johannesburg uh, link has been broken by my leaving. Five generations stayed there, and there are now still nieces and nephews, but uh, none of my particular family has left there. So, yes, that book has been written, and then there will be another one about what happened after diplomacy and how you fit into a new society in which, in many ways, you would have been reviled, but in fact, you try your hardest to be part of the uh, outlook which has now been induced and what you can do to make things better, both for yourself, for your family, and for your community. Goodness, Glenn. So that means you're actually quite busy, because especially, okay, the Johannesburg one might have been done with affection and all that. But now writing about something like that and fitting into the new system, that must be a bit tricky. Well, if you if you take two hours off every day and do a bit of writing, you can keep another job going. And my wife and I have a, a very uh, important business doing translations from Italian, French, and Afrikaans into English. And we're fully occupied. Sometimes whole weekends are occupied with, with uh, translating uh, Fiat or Banco San Paolo's uh, pamphlets mm -hmm. and making sure that these things are done precisely so that they can be read in English as though they were written in English. My goodness, that must be also a bit of a challenge because, as we know, translating from a language into English needs a very special skill to make it sound, as you just said, Glenn, as though it was originally written in English. The important thing is to know your own language better, mm -hmm. not so much the other language. You can always be able to manipulate what is being said and then put it into good English, mm -hmm. and that's the in intention. I also interpreted the courts uh, from Italian and French into uh, into Afrikaans, I mean, or, and Afrikaans uh, into English, and uh, that takes up a lot of my time as well. The fact that it's Italian and French, it's because, is that because it seems to me as though the most important of your postings were in Italy and in Canada? Is that how that came about? Because you've had many postings. Uh, well, the postings I was twice in France, uh, once in Canada and uh, in uh, Italy twice. Mm -hmm. In Canada, they speak a different kind of French, rather ancient French. For instance, they talk about a second-hand car is called a char usager, which in mo modern French would be worn-out tank. <laughs> 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 that is quite different, isn't it? It is, but they're, they're lovely people. The people in uh, Quebec uh, remind me very much of, of the Afrikaner because they are f surrounded. They're only 0.6% of the population of North America, and yet they've gathered the wagons around themselves yes. and they take their Frontier language. Frontier people almost. Yes, yes. yes. Glenn, let's, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> We're going to run out of time. I feel it in well, my well, we bones. We can always do another one. Your first piece of music is by Haydn. Tell me why you've chosen this Haydn's Symphony Number no. 22 with well, the philosopher you, title. Uh, you know very well that I have as much an admiration of Haydn as you have. Indeed. And he, he, is always, uh, he always, like you, he's full of equanimity. He, he writes his music. And there's a spiritual aspect to uh, Symphony Number no. 22, which has a rhythm but which takes you along with it. That's the type of music that gives you such a feeling of contentment. You can listen to it over and over again. You can watch people play it. And I have a, a recording of that symphony done in the Teatro Olimpico, which is in uh, Italy. And it has a, a stage in which there are seven perspectives leading off from it. It was oh. designed by Palladio the great Italian uh, yeah, architect who had a huge influence on people like Christopher Wren.
first movement of Haydn's Symphony Number no. 22, which is known as The Philosopher, and it was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio, the diplomat Glenn Babb, whose new book, In One Era and Out of the Other, has recently been published. One of the things you said about Haydn, Glenn, that both you and I have a great respect for Haydn, and one of the things, apart with of what you said, with which I agree, is that Haydn always makes me aware of the joy of music, the sheer joy of music and music making. I adore him. There's a lovely expression in French, uh, to be happy in your own skin. Mm. And I think that that is what he projects in most of his music. He seems to be happy about producing this music. He doesn't have all the the wrought uh, feelings of Beethoven or Mozart. And that production comes out so easily in his music. And probably that's the best way of expressing himself. And I think to some extent some people regard that as a downside because it's almost as though some people like the overwrought sound. I mean, we cannot deny the greatness of Beethoven and Mozart, but there's a freshness and an exuberance about Haydn that I can't resist, really. Well, the master of harmony as well. Well, exactly. That's another one. Now, we're talking about this book and talking about languages. Did you have to learn these languages? No, let's just go back even further. How did you decide to become a diplomat in the first place? Well, when I was 11, I wrote to the Department of what was then called the External Affairs, and they sent me a very enigmatic letter which I later discovered was the salary scales and how you moved up to the next salary scale. And I've kept that letter. I still have it. Uh, My mother had a friend, or maybe even a boyfriend, who was called Marwick at university in Cape Town. And he became the the commissioner, high commissioner, in both Basutoland and then later Swaziland. And I had great admiration for for him, and I could see what he could do for the for the British, and particularly in Africa, which I love dearly. And uh, he was the person on whom I based myself. But also, my mother and father had strange uh, subscriptions to the Saturday Evening Post and to the London Illustrated News. And the images that that I saw of uh, South Africa and South Africans didn't match with the way in which I saw kind and decent people going about their business trying to uplift the lives of others. My mother was on so many charities, amongst them was the African Feeding Scheme, and she used to take me there as a two, three-year-old to be with the uh, the feeding scheme and to show what the charity could do and what a South African was. And the way in which we were depicted seemed completely alien to what that uh, that image was as a child. So that probably stimulated me to, let's go and tell them what it's really like. <laughs> so at 11, you wrote to the government yes. to ask. And then what happened after that? I mean, how did you in fact get into the diplomatic Well, I corps? first went to university at Stellenbosch, then I <coughs> taught for a year, then I went to the University of Oxford. I got my MA there. I saw that you were at Oxford, yes. And uh, it was after that that I applied for the diplomatic service, and uh, I was interviewed like any other person. In those days, there were very few outsiders that became members of the Department of Foreign Affairs. You were recruited, you went through recruitment process, training, and then you were posted abroad for your first posting. And only after three years, after being a candidate diplomat, were you allowed to be a diplomat. And that seems to have changed. So now anybody can become a diplomat. They, they think that the career is not something that needs any training or any upbringing or any uh, uh, specific knowledge. That's a pity, isn't it? It is. It downplays the essential role of the diplomat in the first place. Can you remember your first posting? I'm sure you do. Oh, very much, yes. My first posting was in Paris, and I'd done uh, university uh, French. I'd done it at school as well. 
But when somebody on their phone said to me, Nikite pa, it suddenly <laughs> that meant don't leave. <laughs> now, here I was on the phone. So that was my first introduction of I've got to know the idioms as well. Yes, it's no yes, use yes. knowing the language as it is grammatically, but really to know what the people are saying. At that stage, were you fluent in Afrikaans and English? Yes, yes. W- I, when you did your diplomatic I training and all that. And I regarded myself as fairly fluent in French, which was unfortunately one of the, the downfalls of most of the diplomats. They never learnt the language of the country in which they were. Mm-hmm. The lady diplomats that came later onto the scene, they were much better at this than the men diplomats. And they got enough uh, knowledge of, say, French or Italian or to order in a restaurant, but not to speak to a politician or to a, a high-placed uh, industrialist. Mm. And from the beginning, I was able to do that, which created a certain amount of jealousy with my seniors, I can tell you. <laughs> but now Paris seems to me to be quite a major posting for such a young diplomat like London or New York. It's sort of... Yeah, but don't forget in those days when you were a third secretary, which was what I was, you counted the silver and you made sure the library was up to date and you changed the duter um, legal inserts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was only uh, through a determined effort to make friends that I was able to show the South African side rather than the administrative side. Later, administration officers took over from the third secretaries. What sort of year are we talking about at I the moment? I went to Paris in 1969. Oh, okay. that oh, was my So it's a long time ago. It, it is a long time ago. And then after that? Then I uh, came back and I was made training officer. So I had a, a very, uh, what was a really a very fruitful period in my life. And it was also the period in which we did the first intake of of women diplomats and also the Transkai diplomats, which was to show that black people were able as well to be diplomats. It wasn't a very successful, uh, I mean, tra- people abroad wouldn't accept the, the Transkaians as as our diplomats, but they were trained and I was I had the fortunate position to be the person who did the training for them. Were, I'm just trying to think now of my history, Glenn, where the, the homelands were not established then, were they? The Transkai was? Yes, the Transkai was the first, then it was Botswana, then it was uh, Siskai and then Venda. Oh, so those, that was in the early 70s? Yes, yes. Okay. Interesting that they weren't accepted overseas, those uh, the black people from those, do you know why? Did they well, think it was a sort of puppet thing? A person who joined me in Paris, uh, his name was Mgleleni. He would go and I make an appointment for him to see the Ghanaians or the Nigerians. And, of course, they said that you're just a puppet. We don't want to speak to you. So, of course, this meant that they retreated within themselves. They couldn't express themselves as being Mm. South Africans Mm. because they were regarded so lowly by the rest of Africa. And really, one of the points of this book was to say that that we should really have taken a completely different course in our in our uh, diplomacy. It's, it's a very important part of the book, which we, I want to just cover that now after your next piece of music. And we've got the Albanoni Adagio. Is there a reason for choosing this apart from well, this Well, it's just so well known. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a bog standard uh, musician <laughs> as far as, as, as uh, classical music is concerned. I always get joy out of listening to that as well. I once tried to learn to play the trumpet, but then it's a B-flat instrument and you have to transpose all of the music into other sides. Uh, <laughs> <very> <laughs> yeah. I was unable to do I was bugler in the band as well. So that was, that's the only instrument I've ever mastered. But Albanoni, uh, that gentle movement of Albanoni is, it takes you like a, a dream into a space of complete and absolute relaxation. Mm-hmm. 
part of the beautiful Albinoni Adagio for organ and strings. Of course, it was written by someone else, but we know it as the Albinoni Adagio. Ganzarotti, I think, wrote it. Anyway, it was the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Glenn Babb, whose new book, which is called In One Era and Out of the Other, was published recently and makes a thoroughly entertaining read. But just before that music, we hinted at, or you hinted at something, Glenn, and it's on the back of your book, and I was interested to see that they put it on the back of your book. Ambassador Glenn Babb argues that the South African government and Pukbota should have allowed South Africa to apply its innovation, creativity, and solid administration into fostering good relations with Africa instead of following an entirely mistaken path. And Babb regards his book as an important critique and painful reminder of the failure of a group of people worried about visas for Japanese jockeys, banning Playboy, and lamenting pastors and Excelsior sleeping with domestics, then asserting its Africanness and offering its backbone to its continent. Now, Glenn, explain why you took that point of view. It's qu- it must have been quite a radical point of view at that time. I found that the Department of Foreign Affairs was run by what was called the Washington Mafia. And the concentration of attention on Europe and North America was completely misplaced. That that wasn't, I mean, anybody knowing foreign relations 101 would know that the most important thing is to go where your problems are, which was Africa. Mm. And Africa, after 1963, when the Organization of African Unity was formed, they made two huge mistakes. One was to keep the frontiers and the boundaries that were laid down by the Treaty of Berlin of 1886. And the other one was to to ban South Africa and all contact with South Africa. Of course, Who made these rules? That was the, it was a general assembly decision of the, OAU. of the OAU. Now, we all know that every single African country has exactly the same problems as we have. They have poverty next to wealth. They have a breakup of their country by frontiers and borders which go right through the middle of tribal and uh, traditional areas. And if we concentrated on that, we would have found some joint way of uh, organizing an admission of South Africa, and we could have taken our power, our strength into Africa. And the admiration for South Africans was hidden. As you will have read in my book, I had contacts in pretty well every single African country from Togo right through to Madagascar, from Sudan, Somalia right through to Southwest Africa and Angola. And they were ready for it. You know, Ghana took its independence in 1957. And by 1968, they were saying, hey, we've made a mistake here, and they were wanting to send a delegation to South Africa. But the South Africans were frightened of what that would mean for the internal politics in South Africa that we had to change. Well, we had to. We did in the end, but mm, we did we it did in it such a way. Gosh. If we'd done it with the collaboration of the rest of Africa, then our power, our strength, our administration, our industry, our economy, our finance would have been able to support Africa. And instead, here we were concentrating on Mar- Margaret Thatcher and hiding behind the petticoats of Reagan. It was silly from the beginning. And uh, I've written an article called The Hollowness of the, South- of the National Party's Foreign Policy and the Hollowness of its Perpetrator, Pukbuta. Because he was. He didn't have, he wasn't comfortable African people. And he said everything should come from Africa. But I'm afraid that, you know, it's true that 
no valet has a hero in his boss. And that was the case with me and, and Pope Boerty. He had great admiration. People had great admiration for him in South Africa, but I think that he really missed a trick. It's very interesting you should say that because in the book I noticed you were quite critical of Pope Boerty, and yet I thought that because you were in foreign affairs and all that, you would have been very much a sort of admirer of his. So hearing why you criticize him is very interesting. There are certain things like, you know, there's no way in which you can judge your success as a diplomat. There's no meter to say this was good, (laughs) that was bad. But there are two things that I'm very content about, and that is the meeting between us, the Cubans, and the Angolans, which was initiated by my going to see uh, President Sasu Nguesu of the uh, the Congo. And he said, yes, you can have your meetings here. We tried everywhere, Guinea-Bissau, most of the Portuguese states, and the Angolans agreed to send a delegation, and that was the beginning of what became the Brazzaville Accord, which meant that we could withdraw our troops from Angola and the Cubans would withdraw. And the whole program was drawn up so that they could withdraw at the same time. That thing, I can, I feel that I should pat myself on my back. <laughs> Definitely. That was, that was really worthwhile. It mm. brought about a much cleaner way into the independence of Namibia and also into the new era in South Africa. Interesting that Puck Boerter didn't, you, you, you mentioned that he sort of had a thing about Africa, almost as though he wanted the international world more than Africa. He wanted us to be seen as friends of the United States and Reagan and Thatcher and those people. As soon as uh, Macmillan made that uh, Winds of Change speech yes. in 1960. For Wurzen, everybody should realize things are changing. The English are going to get out, and within two years, they were all out of England, so out of Africa. The same with the French. Only the Portuguese left a bit behind until 1978. And when we realize that, then you've got to change your focus completely and say, hey, how are we going to prevent uh, the uh, consequences of this and make sure that we can uh, keep our independence against the, uh, the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. And we, we made a great mistake in doing that. It's interesting to hear you in this link saying the one great thing you did with the Brazzaville Accord and the great mistake at the same time. Yes. Let's ponder that over the next piece of music, which I see is Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto and part of the first movement. Is this also something special for you? I had a house in Kensington, and, and uh, one of uh, the only way to keep myself alive was to get tenants in. And one of the tenants <laughs> on the Sunday morning used to play this violin concerto. And immediately as the violins opened up into that house in Kensington and Johannesburg, I thought, this is what this ca- this house needs. It needs to be bold and straightforward and uh, give the power of its, uh, of its uh, Edwardian background. And that was why I like the Mendelssohn piece.
Well, there's part of Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. That recording actually was made here in Cape Town with Avigail Bushakovitz as soloist and the Cape Town Philharmonic conducted by Ariantin. A fine performance indeed and a fine choice of my guest, Glenn Babb, the diplomat whose new book called From One Era to Another has recently been released and that's what we're talking about to some extent. And I say to some extent because I'm just going to move away a little bit for the moment, Glenn, from the diplomatic circles. And apparently you are chairman of the Musenberg Historical Conservative Society. Yes, indeed. What is that all about? Well, Musenberg is a hidden part of Cape Town. Fortunately, it will stay that way because the buses can't get there and they can't (laughs) park. So we don't have this mass immigration uh, and mass uh, tourism. But it is a fascinating place because our first blue plaque, by the way, that we put up for the Musenberg Historical Society was for Agatha Christie, who learned how to surf at Musenberg. I believe so, now that you mention that. Uh, the, the next one was uh, for Farmer Peck's Inn, which was a famous place on, on your way to Simon Sound, where Simon Sound, during the winter, everything was offloaded there and it had to be taken into Cape Town. They had a, uh, this inn which was two farmers uh, that had left England from Somerset and settled in, in Musenberg. And one of them started an inn, and his first we recorded historically because he, he broke the drinking laws. He was selling liquor on the premises. But he had a huge <laughs> advertisement saying, clean beds without fleas. <laughs> <laughs> How appealing. <laughs> must yeah, so been. Musenberg has this, uh, Rhodes died there. Mm. We have the Hitpostes, which is the oldest building on the False Bay Coast. It, that was the actual toll house of the Dutch East India Company. And that's where Musenberg gets its name from, because there was a sergeant called Moes who ran the toll house. And that became the place that Moes lived in. Meissenberg, it was originally with a U, making, making a little village. But then it became Meissenberg, which means the mountains. The mountains. And it's still so cosmopolitan. There are artists and potters and musicians. Everybody that is anybody mm. in the art world is in Musenberg. I have very close friends who live in Musenberg in what apparently used to be called the village or something yes, like that. Yes. And whenever I go to Musenberg, it seems as I'm in a different planet almost. Musenberg has a different feel from any of the sort of sea point venues, for example. It's got its own atmosphere completely. Fortunately, none of the high-rises. We have one yes, rather large Cinnabar, which obviously there was a man called Schwartz, and he obviously had some very good contacts, let's not go further than that, mm-hmm. with the city council, and he was able to build this building, which at the moment the regulations are strictly adhered to nothing higher than six stories. And there is a building opposite the railway station, and the railway station is a national monument, by the way. This building has been in dereliction for the last uh, 30 years. Fortunately, it's been bought and it's been made into small flats, but there couldn't be a more perfect place to see the sea than to be in that uh, in that building. Mm-hmm. We called it the Pink Palace because <laughs> it was painted pink for a long time. <laughs> but what is the Historical Conservative Conservation Society? What do they do? Well, we try to maintain and uh, promote the historical background of Musenberg. We have talks, uh, for instance, on sharks in in the in False Bay. We recently had a, a talk by Professor Bruton on uh, Darwin in the Cape. We shoot off our cannon once a year for to re- recognize the Battle of Musenberg, which took place in 1795, and that's interesting in itself. And then we have 
the death of Rhodes, which is on the 6th of March, 1902. And, of course, Rhodes Cottage is still very much there. It is. We have we b- make uh, two roast lambs, which I cook myself, and we drink champagne uh, on that day. And there's also a talk at the same time. One was on cricket and the, uh, and the empire. That was very interesting as well. So, yes, we have a too big canvas to paint on, unfortunately. And we depend on the donations very much. You speak about cooking lamb. Also, there's a story of you cooking hams somewhere. I read that you apparently are quite a cook. Well, I'm not a cook. As I say, I'm a bog-standard cook. <laughs> <rather than laughs> bog-standard cook. <laughs> and okay. I have some favorite things that I do, like uh, beef wellington and uh, ham uh, cooked in beer and uh, a roast lamb. Those are basically my standard. And also, I'm quite good at booty. But if you can't say to take Babuti to the French, they say, say, très intéressant. It's very interesting, which means down, down. <laughs> down, down, down. You've just got my interest going with Beef Wellington because I cannot find Beef Wellington in Cape Town. That is good. Someone's going to write and tell me how wrong I am, but at least now I know you cook it. But, but Glenn, getting back to something more serious, um, with all the travels that you did as a diplomat, did you sample a lot of the local cuisines of the places you were in. Naturally, in in Italy, every single Mm, town, every region has a different kind of cooking. And as you get further north, there's more meat. And as you get further south, more fish. Uh, very seldom do people have a lot of meat. There's abacchio, which is the traditional thing in in Rome. But then there are things like uh, spaghetti alfredo, which is just uh, spaghetti thrown into raw egg and cooked with a bit of bacon. At least the bacon is cooked and put into it. And there's nothing more delicious than that. <laughs> Good grief. Let's take another piece of music because we have Domenico Scarlatti, that marvellous composer of those short um, keyboards, and you've asked for the keyboards, not an E major. So is there a reason you put this on your list? Uh, I've never been able to play the piano. I tried to get my children to do so, but none of them were a- able. One learned Moonlight Sonata, but didn't actually... Uh, go any further so yes it, it's the incredible amount of keyboard activity that you have to do to play a scarlatti and it's really quite admirable when you watch somebody playing one of those scarlatti things you think how can one person be playing all those notes at the same <laughs> exactly. time exactly and you can't use a pedal too no. often it's got to be just clean notes and here we have our own christopher Digan to play the sonata in e by domenico scarlatti
Sonata in E by Domenico Scarlatti, played by Christopher Digan, and a choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, Glenn Babb. Glenn, in your book, In One Era and Out of the Other, I've been dipping into chapters that I've sort of enjoyed. For example, your visit to the Vatican, and being a Catholic, I was most intrigued by your attitude and impressions of the Vatican. I mean, this is something... Not many people, the man on the street, gets an opportunity to do, to go and meet the Pope. It wasn't so much the Pope, although there's three people that I've met in my life uh, that gives it the, the charisma is such that you just cannot be nubilated mm. by the person's presence. But there are cardinals who are specifically arranged to deal with particular things. And one of them was uh, Cardinal Echegre. And with him, I had a fantastic relationship, although he was our fiercest critic in when he was Bishop of, of uh, Paris. But when you have dinner alone with him, served by a nun, there's nothing more intimate, nothing more that you're feeling that spiritually you can get along and can solve a lot of problems that otherwise would not be solved. Yes, I, in Italy, there's a thing called the, the agreement between Italy and the Vatican, and you cannot be an ambassador both to the Vatican and to the uh, Italian government. They're separate. So Rome has probably the biggest uh, diplomatic corps in the world. It has the Food and Agriculture Organization, it has Italy, and it also has the Vatican. The Vatican, gosh. Also, I was I was sort of strangely sad reading about Marika de Klerk, whom I think you said was one of the few people you know who had no friends. Yes. She's a, a very, very sad person. When 
um, I did my utmost to to make her feel at home, and she was such a prickly person that it couldn't, you couldn't get beyond that prickly part. Uh, mm-hmm. She was like a porcupine in many ways, and one of the things was that a special visit had been arranged with for her to the Uffizi Gallery. So we saw things which the public will never see: uh, Botticelli's and Lippi's and things that, uh, and all her her sole remark was, "Gee, there's a lot of gold." And so yeah, the the yeah. impact of this historically and culturally seemed to go over her head, and she was just worried about the daily events that took took place around. Did her. you tell a story in this book? I can't remember now about Margaret Thatcher sending her out to do shopping. No. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody told me a story that she and F.W. were meeting Margaret Thatcher. And when they got down to do business, Margaret Thatcher suggested to Marike that she goes out and looks around at some shops. And apparently she was very put out and put in official complaints. Mm. I thought that was you. But also, and I know we're running out of time, but you cover the Helderberg, which, as we know, is a great mystery and fascinates us. And also a long chapter on the Indians of Canada um, relating, as you did, to the apartheid system in South Africa. So that must have been... An interesting project, may I call it a project that you did there? Uh, yes, it, you know the main enemies of South Africa in the uh, in the Commonwealth were not so much the uh, the African countries; it was Canada and Australia. And gosh, haven't they got a lot to hide? I mean, it's <laughs> exactly. rich coming from them, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. As we discussed. So, so I mean, it wasn't a matter of vengeance, but I, I was given this invitation to go and visit this small tribe north of uh, of Winnipeg. And I'd been to other tribal regions before, and of course the huge press attack on me and this poor chief that invited me, that was filled for two weeks. They were trying to get him to disinvite me. But he held his he held his ground, and he said, "I'll disinvite the ambassador if Mr. Mulroney, who was the prime minister, comes mm-hmm. in his place." And the tone changed completely after the visit because many of those journalists had never visited. A reserve before, mm-hmm. and here they were confronted by three thousand five hundred people, of whom only fifty-seven were working. Bridges that were broken, roads that didn't work, people living in tepees at minus twenty degrees, Good in career. caravans. So they had to take a step back and say, "Hey, folks, this South African chap has perhaps got a point here." Mm-hmm. And after that, there was a, an Indian delegation of Red Indians who came to South Africa and said. We think these people in Soweto are much better off than our people back in uh, in, in the Pegwes Indian Band, for instance. But it, you mean it, it doesn't really match up. With the the thing is that when the whites arrived in Canada, Australia, and South Africa, the local population was small. But it isn't it ironic that the one that's grown the most to fifty six million is in South Africa, South whereas Africa, there's still yeah. only three hundred and fifty thousand Red Indians. In Canada and 350,000 Aborigines in uh, mm, Australia, gosh, and they're not treated well. They are not, mm. and you can't just throw money at it. You have to do something completely different. You know? Yeah, yeah. We could go on and on and on, but we're going to have to stop now <laughs> because. But I just want to repeat the fact that this is a thoroughly entertaining book to read. It's not dry and um, academic. It's uh, it's a jolly good. I wouldn't call it a page turner, but it's certainly fascinating about your life in one era and out of the other by Glenn Babb, who's been my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. I see you've got a bit of French 
bit of France coming up to close. Françoise Hardy. Yes. Oh, no, my French is not good. Uh, you no, say it. Very good. Uh, Françoise Hardy. Uh, Tous les garçons et les filles de ma vie se promènent dans les rues de Paris. Uh, it, that was the era. You remember that there was uh, a, a British song of a barefoot girl who, uh, I think her name was Sandy Shaw, Pop it on a string. Yes. She won the Euro Division. And she was at the same era uh, as Francois Hardy, who made her name by singing in between the results coming in of the presidential election of uh, de Gaulle. So she she got her fame from that, but she was a really straightforward, down-to-earth person. She wrote, composed her own music, she sang it, and uh, everybody loved her as a typical, archetypical French woman. And that's how we're going to end this week's edition of People of Note, where my guest has been the retired diplomat, Glenn Babb. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Rodney. Quelqu'un
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. If